Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. And welcome to Commodity Watch Radio with me, Dominic Frisby. Commodity Watch Radio is hosted in association with Mindsight.com. Today I'm talking to Robin Griffiths, who is, uh, along with William Houston, the co-author of Water, the Final Resource, How the Politics of Water Will Impact on the World. Uh, Robin has worked as a stockbroker and fund manager in London, New York, Tokyo and Hong Kong for companies which include Phillips and Drew, HSBC, James Capel, WI Carr, Rathbones and Casanova. He's the former chairman of both the International Federation of Technical Analysts and the British Society of Technical Analysts and he's currently the technical strategist for Casanova Capital. I know, Robin, there are a lot of keen technical analysts who listen to this show. So let me first ask you, when you use technical analysis, what are your favourite indicators? Uh, the, the one that got me into the business in the first place is regression analysis. Uh, the, the logical way of calculating a trend is to put a line down the middle of it, uh, uh, and then you watch the fluctuations above and below that. And when I did this back in the early 60s, it's because of my previous engineering training, and I was welcomed into the body of Techlinus by one Alec Ellinger, who said chart analysis, as he called them, used to connect all the highs or all the lows with a ruler. And my idea of putting a trend down the middle seemed really rather unusual and was very interesting. So that's what got me in. So regression analysis is my main uh, tool. And um, you use, presumably, regression analysis to try and identify trends. Yes. Uh, the second thing that I've always added is the knowledge that many of the longer-term trends are actually driven by cycles in the underlying economy. And I use a variation of the model that was published by Joseph Schumpeter back in the 1930s. And he, of course, was borrowing work of earlier economists. So you got some very long-term trends he called Kondratiev waves and then 10-year cycles, which are called the juggler wave, and then four-year cycles, which these days we call the presidential election cycle, and finally annual seasonal deviations, which is the sell-in may and go away and come back in St. Ledger Day. And do you use uh, any other technical indicators, moving averages, statistics, any of those kind of yes, things? Yes, I uh, use all of the standard defaults on the normal uh, proprietary systems that you've got, but moving averages certainly go with... Uh, uh, regression analysis and the normal crossovers. I also use um, RSIs, MACDs, those sorts of things. And how long was it before your methods were accepted in the corporate world? Were you well, regarded as a kind of tea leaf reader? It, well, initially I think we were all tea leaf readers, but I, back then I wrote a newsletter called The Amateur Chartist. I, the author, was the amateur, but was sending out my opinions anyway. Although that went, was sold to the public, many of the then big institutional investment managers bought it and gave me orders on the back of it. So I guess that was what got it accepted. 
And uh, mentioning cycles, are you familiar with Martin Armstrong? Uh, I am. I, uh, years ago, I met Martin Armstrong, and uh, in the period when he had control of the library of the Foundation for the Study of Cycles uh, in New York, um, I used to read quite a lot of his writing and thought he was doing original and good work on that subject. Um, you know we had one of his turn dates a couple of days ago. I, that had missed me, actually. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the, so in, in, the, in the kind of grand cycle, in your opinion, are we um, in a bear market rally or is the, the next great bull market underway? Well, it, the answer is yes and no. Basically, those markets which have completed a bear and are now in a new bull market are China, India, emerging markets, and those dominated by metals, minerals, and resources. They are making a pattern of rising highs and lows above their rising 200-day moving averages. In the Western world, uh, we are having a rally in a bear market, a jolly good rally, which is not over yet. I think it can certainly last till the end of May and put on another 15%, something like that. But it's, that's what it is. It's a rally in a bear market at the moment. So we should sell in May and go away? I think so, yes. And... So is this a long-term secular bull market in commodities still? Yes. You can't grow China and India without commodities going up. Uh, what they have had uh, in the previous 12 months was a brutal cyclical correction, but they, even at the bottom of the correction, they were hundreds of percent up on where their secular trend had started, which is roughly the year 2000. Whereas in our Western markets, after we're 50% lower than we were in the year 2000, so we're in a secular downtrend. Gold? Gold uh, is at the moment something I'm long of and have indeed written about for our clients here. Um, it's not an asset that I fall in love with, but it, in, in addition to being a piece of metal, it works as money, at least some of the time. And it's working as money now because people know that central banks, and particularly the U.S. Fed, are printing paper dollars. And eventually that will debauch the value of the paper dollar. So holding onto a brick made out of gold is, it stays the same, of course, but that's good against paper dollars. Do you think we're entering into a 1930s-style depression, a Kondratiev yes. winter? Yes. Um, gold I, shines in Kondratiev winter. Well, in fact, I, I can tell you, as an economist, that the rate at which car sales, uh, Caterpillar digger sales, and other capital assets like that declined is actually, has actually, on the current data, been more brutal than it was in the 30s. So although in the whole economy you can't yet argue this is a Great Depression, in the rate of change of the data, it's at least as bad as the 30s. It's certainly worse than anything I've lived through, unless we're going to go and compare it with the Japanese bubble bursting in 1989 onwards. Do, are you bullish about alternative technology, green tech? Yes. Uh, again, going back to Schumpeter, who created the expression creative destruction, it's the incoming of new technologies, which usually kills off old technologies and drives whole new industries. In the West, our upturn, if it's going to be sustainable, must be driven by the incoming of new technologies. Now, whether that is the electric car or nanotechnology or biotechnology, I don't know, but we're trying to identify some of these new incoming industries is where our future lies. Whereas, of course, in Asia, they only need to copy what we've got with all the number of people that they've got, and they can have a lot of growth, which is copycat growth, and therefore quite easy to deliver. I love the fact that in China they've skipped wires. They've gone straight straight to wireless yeah. technology. Yes, yes. Um, 
Are our leaders making all the same mistakes as the Japanese policymakers made? It's, it, as it happens, I lived in Japan at the time when Japan was accused of making those mistakes. And yes, we have got zombie companies. Uh, yes, we've got uh, effectively dead banks that can't remain independent. So we're making some of the same mistakes. However, to give Mr. Bernanke his due, on the actual providing of liquidity and money, he acted very quickly in enormous size in a very determined way. So that is definitely not what happened in Japan. So th there are differences as well as some similarities. Now, let's turn to this book, yep. Water, the Final Resource, How the Politics of Water Will Impact on the World. Um, it's, it's an absolutely superb read. I loved it. Um, it's one of its many qualities is the fact that it's very concise. It's only 150 or so pages, but it's, it's very densely written. Um, I suppose as good a place to start as any as since we've been talking about cycles is um, with uh, the passage about one Raymond Wheeler, who yes. was uh, working at uh, Kansas University in the 1920s and 30s, and he identified a, uh, a relationship between human behavior and climate. Yes. Why don't you talk about yeah, okay. He was a genius, really. He did, he did counted things like tree rings in sequoias, and he drilled into ice core samples where you could go back 400,000 years, seeing when the cycles turned up in weather. And he identified these cycles, some of which are very long, some of which also uh, do indeed fit with things like the sunspot cycle. There are basically four weather conditions. You can be hot and dry, hot and wet, cold and dry, cold and wet. And that definitely, at the crowd level, the national level, affects psyches and uh, people's propensities uh, to be aggressive or to be calm and, and, and because their economy is being affluent or, or, or not. Uh, and he, some of his uh, extrapolations may well be counted as unproven. They're merely suggestions. But he argues the case pretty well. What I tried to do in the book is effectively say, if this guy's wheel is right, drawing forward his cycles on, on the evidence he provided, this is where we're going. And what it's predicting is there are certain parts of the world which are already in drought, and it's going to get chronically worse going forward from here, so much worse that it will cause people to get up and move from where they live, partly because they've got no choice, and possibly fight to end up being somewhere else. Which parts of the world uh, are most affected by yeah, drought? Well, it, it is unfortunately parts of Asia and, and the emerging markets. If you take a line that runs through the north of China, sweeps down through what is now parts of Pakistan and goes into North Africa, where we know millions of people are starving anyway, I'm afraid that that's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, whereas if you go to India, where the monsoons, according to Wheeler's predictions, the monsoons will not fail. India is going to be wealthy in the sense it will always be able to feed itself. So there'll be rich and poor even in that part of the world. And then, there, of course, there are... Um, I mean, presumably the floods in places like Bangladesh will worsen, according to the... Yes. No, indeed. The, the, the thing about this, the, the weather cycles that drive both drought also drive flooding because it's not that the world doesn't have any rain, but it doesn't fall where you want it to fall. Here again, it's slightly complicated. There are two cycles. The Atlantic Ocean gets hot and cold on a cycle, and the Pacific Ocean gets hot and cold on a cycle. So again, you've got four conditions. They can both be hot together, they both can be cold together, and then you get one, the Pacific's hot, hot cold, and we're hot, and, and vice versa. 
and, and in the Pacific, people are familiar with the terms the El Nino and the La Nina, which is this cycle. Now, depending on the combination of these interrelated cycles, the weather predominantly comes from the west across the east. It decides how far north or south of the equator the main weather belts come through. If the weather belts come through in the proper place, the rain falls on the wheat-growing plains and we're all rich and eat a lot. If it falls in the wrong place, you get flooding in places like Mexico and others, and you get a dust bowl where you're trying to grow the crops. And this is the nature of the problem. So there will be places that flood, and there will be, and they're the, the ones that always do flood, basically, and there will be dust bowls where we don't want them at the moment. In the crop-growing regions the of crop -growing Australia regions. and America? Yes, goodness yes, as well. yes. Okay. Um, would you describe the UK as, as cold and wet? Um, no, we, we have a very benign uh, climate. And in fact, uh, in the great sort of global warming, global cooling thing, England becomes a green and pleasant land like it was under Julius Caesar or even the Vikings. We all be able to grow grapes and you know, people will come to sunny England for their summer holidays. Yeah. So, um, I mean, one way to position yourself for this uh, as an investor is perhaps to buy arable land in, 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 in southern England, say. Well, yeah, I do bear in mind that the rain in, in the British Isles falls in the north and the west. It's the south and the east, which is the relatively dry bit. But again, the Garden of England is Kent for the, a very good reason. That's where the conditions are about right for it to be the Garden of England. My uh, grandmother was from Kent, and she used to say, if Kent is the Garden of England, Maidstone is the patio. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the trend that you're identifying is one of climate change, and it's an inevitable climate change. It's not necessarily driven by the burning of fossil fuels or anything No, like that. some of the book does, I mean, is devoted to um, the global warming scam, if we could call it that, mm -hmm. politely. The, this idea originally put forward by Al Gore, I'm sure he's totally sincere and he really believes it, but the notion that the world is suddenly heating up in a way it's never done before and it's all mankind's fault is absolutely not proven by the data. As I mentioned, both under Julius Caesar and the Vikings, England was a long way hotter than it is now. The name Greenland was called that for a reason. The Vikings lived happily in Newfoundland before they got frozen back out. Uh, so the planet has been both hotter and colder than it is now, several times during the lifetime of human beings, rather than merely the dinosaurs. These cycles are part of the natural cycle against which human beings' activities are puny and pathetic, to put it mildly. The sun as a heating or cooling engine is dramatically more important, and at the moment the sun, there are no sunspot cycles. It's at a 55-year minimum, and when we previously had minimums like this, there's a spora minimum and the maunder minimum, not, there are pictures of people not only skating on the Thames but with bonfires on the Thames. So that's what it's like when it's cold on these sunspot minimums. The, the sun alone would be tending to make the planet cooler than it is. Um, the, the predictions in any complex system are certainly not linear. You can't say the last two summers were hotter and hotter, therefore it'll be boiling by the year, any year you like. You just can't make linear predictions in a complex system. Nazim Nicholas Taleb of the Black Swan fame would be very clear at pointing this out. So those sorts of predictions are wrong. Uh, the planet is getting hotter at the moment for its own reasons, and its, its cooling mechanism, apart from the sun, is volcanic activity. 
um, and we've got redoubts re erupting in Alaska right now, and Kamchatka up in Russia erupting right now. That puts aerosols into the atmosphere, which causes the cloud cover. That's why our summer's not going to be great this year. Really? Yeah. So enjoy this April while, while... Enjoy April while you can, and do not expect it to be a brilliant summer, because it's, it's not going to be. Because of the volcanic the activity volcanic in activity, Russia and Alaska. very, very powerful. And again, proper scientists are studying this, and to the extent that you could make predictions about them are doing it. You, they could normally tell you the stresses that might cause an eruption are building up. They've got all sorts of sensors measuring it. But exactly when it's going to happen is the chaos theory says you can't get it right. It, it, you could know a lot about it without making accurate predictions. I have to say, I, I, in the last two or three years, I've become a terrible old libertarian, and I think governments have way too much power and more than they know, yes. know what to do with. And when a government has too much power, it becomes arrogant. Absolutely. It's a natural, it's an inevitable thing. And it's almost a symptom of arrogance that governments somehow think they can cure global, global warming. Yes, absolutely. I'm afraid. And some of that arrogance does go straight through to Mr. Gore, uh, who even with his Nobel Prize, you know, he was vice president and he didn't get re-elected because he was seen by the US voting public as being a little bit dogmatic and arrogant. And aloof. Uh, and aloof, yes. I'm sure he's a genuine and sincere man, as indeed is Obama with some of his sort of greener-than-green policies. But some of them are totally misguided. The one I think is the most irritating of all is the idea that you should use food to turn into petrol. That, that really is an abomination that should be stopped. Particularly the as it, the amount of energy that goes into producing Absolutely. it is, is, is neutral. Absolutely right, yes. Yeah. So we're in a period of climate change, yeah. and as a consequence of this climate change, you see flooding in some areas, you see droughts in other areas. Yes. This is going to lead to the mass migration of people. Yes. Who's going to be moving, and where are they going to be going? That's good. Uh, the, uh, I think you can divide the world into the wealthy West and the, uh, the rest. It is much more of a life-or-death problem in the emerging markets, particularly northern China and those other areas I named into Africa, because you literally do die if you die, and your cattle die. Uh, here in the West, we have taps. We turn them on. We expect something that does not carry diseases to emerge, and it will. Uh, I'm sure our authorities and our infrastructure is good enough. Uh, it may well mean in America that the green golf courses in Palm Springs go back to tumbleweed because the Columbia River can't keep doing that is wasting the river but mm. in the west in a developed part our water will still be water we may have water meters and we pay more for the water but it'll still be like food a relatively low expense for us in the emerging market china and india it's life or death and that's where the west should use its wealth and its technology to i and genuine aid if you put a well in a little village you help hundreds of people live if they haven't got a well, they have to carry a bucket ten miles and get something carrying typhoid or something. It would, you know, th this is where the problem can be really helped. Secondly, there's plenty of water on the planet. It's just that it's salt. But we've got technology that can re-desalinate the sea as long as you've got lots of cheap energy. Now, of course, if you're an Arab country, you've got plenty of oil. You can use that to desalinate the water and make your golf courses green. But in poor countries, they can't do that. But the virtuous circle would be to use an energy that could be free, like sun or possibly wind, to slowly desalinate the sea and then grow crops where they currently can't grow crops. You could get a very healthy virtuous circle. But the West might need to donate 
this technology and infrastructure, at least on a, for a, a period, before the poorer country can pay back on it. And that, so there's, we, we can spin some optimistic uh, scenarios from here, especially where the problem is, is complex. The nearer to the equator you are, the worse the drought problem, but the greater the free solar energy is going to be. So it, it, it's sort of good and bad together. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in peak oil? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I think it may well take 50 more years before we actually have a real problem. It will be like coal. We still leave lots of hundreds of years worth of coal in the ground, but we move on to something better. I mean, all those years ago, Sheikh Yamadi had that wonderful quote that the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of rocks. We, we will leave oil in the ground when we have something cleaner and neater to move on to, which is electricity. So the real problem is, can we generate more electricity without putting gases into the air? And things like nuclear and wind and solar will do all of that. This, uh, I read this, uh, this is an extract from the Week magazine, which summarizes the, uh, the pick of last week's articles. And I was just reading this on the tube coming here, and I'm going to read it out and, and see what you have to say. This was written by Wendy Barnaby in uh, Nature, it's called Nature, I presume that's Nature magazine. And it's entitled, Countries Do Not Go to War Over Water. A few years ago, I agreed to write a book about water wars, says Wendy Barnaby. It seemed a great idea, given all the grim forecasts of conflict over this most vital resource. But once I got to work, I found that countries that are short of water almost never fight over it. Instead, they cooperate. Israel, Jordan and Egypt all long ago stopped producing enough water to meet the needs of their populations, yet none of the wars they fought with each other has been over water. This is partly because they get round the problem by importing food. Buying grain dispenses with the need for crop irrigation, which is by far the biggest drain on water supplies. But countries that share water sources also tend to cooperate on matters such as river regulation or hydroelectric dams. India and Pakistan, at odds on so many other issues, have managed to maintain a water treaty since 1960. Even the Israelis and Palestinians have a joint water committee, which continues to meet whatever the circumstances. There will be no book on water wars, because they are a myth. Are they a myth? Well, uh, her historical perspective is extraordinarily short, is what you can say. It's absolutely true, everything she's said since World War II. I think it's actually the Geneva Convention which says that you won't do this. I mean, in the Middle East, it is true that the Tigris and Euphrates both rise in Turkey. So if Turkey actually wanted to, it could hold a gun to people's head in all of those other nations, and it has agreed not to do that, etc. However, if you go back through, I mean, my colleague Bill Houston can begin almost any conversation well before the pharaohs and bring you slowly up to date. Uh, people have indeed emigrated, immigrated, and fought wars over water. So, I mean, uh, you j it just depends when your history starts, basically. Um, I think we, we do have current examples, though. The boat people who, on various floating contraptions, try desperately to arrive in southern Europe are escaping parts of Africa because they have no life where they are, and water and lack of food is one of those reasons. Is that a migration you see accelerating? Well, that's the sort of thing you see. Um, people walk from Zimbabwe, which is a slightly different problem, into South Africa. There are 10 million of them doing that. Again, it's the same thing. I would expect the parts of, of northern China and Pakistan and down into these parts of Africa 
people have no choice but to walk away from there. If occasionally they have to fight away from there, you, I mean, you can call it a, is it a local war in Rwanda or is, is it not a war? Is it just a, a tragedy? I don't know. You can use a different label, but you, it's the equivalent of, I think, what we're talking about. It, it's, yeah. it means conflict. It means conflict, yes. And is, is, are these coming water problems going to impact on population growth? Presumably we'll, we'll see less of it. The answer is yes, but we in the West won't have to live through it. We won't fight about water. We have got the technology to get around it. But in the where do all the people of the world live, 1.3 billion live in China, 1 billion live in India, and then Latin America, it's in those countries where the problem is greatest, and that's where most people are. So for a large part of the population of the planet, it will be a major issue worth fighting for. It's just in our little bit, which we tend to think of as the centre of the universe, it's not nearly a fighting issue. She's right on that. So we're going to see potential conflicts over water, yeah. an increase in refugees, change in, uh, in, in climate. What does the investor do to, right. to position himself That's a very good this? point. Uh, you can begin down some what look like hopeful paths, and the answer seems to be easy, and you find it's more complicated. For example, I've mentioned desalinating the sea is obviously going, is already a big industry, it's going to get bigger. Who is big in desalinating the sea? General Electric. Will the General Electric share price perform like a hot growth water stock? No, it performs like an American conglomerate with many other activities. Okay, uh, who else is good at water and controlling? Well, the French utility company is extremely good at that. Will Vivendi perform like a hot global water stock? No, it's a French utility. So you, you, getting to the answer that you want is quite a lot difficult. Uh, this east-west divide thing is very relevant. Some of the most direct stocks where most of what the company does is in this issue tend to be Asian, um, particularly even just making pipes, valves and taps is big business connected with water. And if you're in China and Hynix is the name of a company, this is a good play. Coming down to western ones, people need to connect onto that line of business and metering uh, smart meters that can firstly tell you if your pipe is leaking, all pipes leak a bit, knowing the extent of that and sending out bills uh, with high technology, that's very good. There are several companies in this uh, line, uh, Baxter Valves is one that's it's a lot of what their business is all about. Um, wastewater, as soon as you've used water it should be used again. Um, the, the, so there's all sorts of technologies and companies involved in that. And then finally, irrigation. Can we, with the less water, can we still grow enough food? And there's an Israeli technology. In, if, instead of doing the old-fashioned thing, you flood the fields and let the rice grow through a flood, you basically drown the plant some of the time and then you starve it the rest. That doesn't work. It's much better to have piping, cheap piping, that takes just enough water to the plant and reduces it, releases it one drip at a time. This is Israeli technology. Uh, and that will make a little bit of water go an awful lot further. So these are the sorts of areas where you can end up um, investing. There's a tiny little Canadian company, yeah. Tiny Market Cap, that I look at called Environmental Sensors, yeah. and they have a widget which you stick in the ground, and it tells you when the ground is dry and when, it's, when it needs watering, yeah. basically. And Brilliant. it gets used a lot in golf courses, yes. but... but you can see something like yeah. that. Oh, being... absolutely. The more you can find a little company like that, you've got potential for a big upside. Mm -hmm. But the giants are likely also to be diluted by their other interests. Yeah. I think. Um, 
I think, I mean, this has been an excellent interview, and I'd like to ask you one more question, not remotely related to water, but uh, related to cycles, and that is your view, it's my favourite subject, and everyone's favourite subject, what is your view of the British property market? Is this a bounce that we're just in the early stages of? It's only a bounce, but the the bottom is not in. The golden rule about bubbles and bubbles bursting, and it was a bubble, is when the bubble bursts, you eventually get back to the, the same level you were before the bubble started. And the, Mr. Jackman put the figures in the FT just the other day. On that basis, there's another 50% down to go. Now, of course, the property market is not one ho- homogeneous entity. And the pound there's, has lost its va- a lot of its value yeah, since Yes, then. there's a genuine shortage of certain types of homes. There's starter homes and studios for people who are just in their first job even, but rather than married. And I think at that end of the market, which is also where governments can provide help in various ways, uh, there's a genuine shortage. Those prices probably won't come down. But if we're talking luxury mansions in smart parts of town, you can knock a million or two off those without even blinking, and I'm pretty sure that's exactly what will happen. Good stuff. Well, the book is called Water, the Final Resource, How the Politics of Water Will Impact on the World. It's by William Houston and Robin Griffiths. Is it Houston or Houston? Houston. With a here, okay, and it's uh, published by Harriman House, and I will put a link on the homepage of the radio site. Robin Griffiths, thank you very much. Thank you. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.